Amen. Hey, everybody. Yeah, have a seat. Welcome, everyone, to Wednesday night. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship. And, and welcome to those of you watching at home online. Good to just have you here together with us. And we are looking at the book of Revelation. We've been, for about a year and a half now, uh, cruising through at 30,000 feet here, uh, going through every book of the Bible in this overview way. And so we come to the last of it here. We're not going to get finished tonight here because Revelation, come on, right? It's a great book and uh, I want to take some time looking at it. We're at least going to be a couple of weeks, if not more. We'll see how that all unfolds here um, for us. But if you can make your way to Revelation and uh, we're going to just uh, have some fun in this great book here tonight. Now, Revelation is one of those books that um, it, it, it's so interesting because it, it's a book that to many is very confusing. It's difficult to understand. It's filled with mystery, judgment. It can instill a sense of fear and worry to some. And it's caused a lot of people just to take Revelation and kind of do this, you know, close it up. I'm going to put that aside. I'm not going to worry about that. That will take care of itself another time, right? And, and, and a lot of churches kind of do the same thing as they sort of put it aside, dismiss it. And, and oftentimes you will be hard pressed to find a message coming from Revelation, let alone a whole series going through the book of Revelation. But can I just say how exciting it is for us to be able to look at the book of Revelation? I love the book of Revelation. Here's why I love it. It's because in the book of Revelation, we have a built-in blessing for all of those that read it, that take it in, that follow it. It's found right there in Revelation 1, verse 3. If you look there with me, it says there, Blessed is he or she, okay, all right? Everybody with me? So, okay. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. So we have a built in blessing for us in the book of Revelation for all those that will take it in. Now, one reason we're so blessed is because this book is all about Jesus. All right. Now, some of your Bibles might have in the, in the title, The Revelation of St. John, all right? That might be in some of your Bibles, and that's fine. But understand that this is the book of Revelation. Yes, John is the author of it. We'll get to that. But this is a book all about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, take note of that. It's not revelations, as a lot of people like to say. When you hear people say, oh, I've been looking through the book of Revelations, just can you correct them? It's the revelation, because it's all about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? So this is what this book is all about. That's why it's exciting to get into, because as we get into the book of Revelation, we get into the person of Jesus Christ. So not only does it contain a built-in blessing for us, but it also has what I find is so cool is a natural kind of built-in outline for us. In other words, this book that many people like to say, it's too hard to follow. It's too hard to understand. I don't get it. I'm just confused. The book of Revelation contains a natural, it's the only book in the Bible that contains its own natural outline for us to be able to follow through this very logically and to make sense of it. It's found right there in Revelation 1 verse 19 where it says this, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. 
Okay? So here's the outline of Revelation for us. First of all, John's told, write the things which you have seen, which we'll find out is chapter 1, the person Jesus Christ. John is going to see again this vision of Jesus Christ. All right? Write the things which you have seen, Jesus. Then he's told, write the things which are, which we'll see in chapters 2 and 3 is dealing with the church. The, the churches of Asia, seven churches, we'll see, we'll go through them. Those are the things which are presently in John's day. That John was instrumental in being a pastor of uh, Ephesus and Ephesus mentioned and no doubt had influence in a lot of those churches around there. But then he's told to write the things which will take place after this. After what? After the church. So chapters 4 to 22 begin to chronicle the events that are going to unfold when the church is departed. Where's the church going? Well, that's where the rapture comes into play. Jesus is going to catch his church up in there to meet them, bring them to heaven. And then these events of the tribulation are going to unfold. We'll see that in chapters 4 to 19. And then chapters 19 and 22 detail the events after the tribulation, which is Christ's second coming, the millennial reign, and then that eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. That's how the book of Revelation divides us. So as you read through it, you begin to see very clearly what's going on based on that natural outline given to us there in Revelation 119. It's the outline that we're going to be following as we go through this book here together. So as we said here, John is the, uh, the, the author of this book, the Apostle John, all right? He wrote not only the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the epistles, but here the book of Revelation as well. Now, John, as I mentioned, had become this pastoral oversight over the church in Ephesus, the surrounding churches also, sometime around 70 AD. So John was instrumental there in a pastoral role. Now, under the reign of, of the Roman Emperor Nero, Christianity went through some immense persecution. We've been talking about that as we've gone through uh, First and Second Peter on Sunday mornings, right? Peter's writing to a church that's suffering through this persecution under Nero's reign. And that was, Nero reigned from uh, 54 to 68 AD. But then down the line of emperors came another Roman emperor who was every bit as ruthless and sadistic as Nero was. His name was Domitian. He reigned from 81 to 96 AD. And the persecution that was known under Nero's reign only intensified under Domitian's reign. So Domitian was a guy that promoted emperor worship during his reign where everyone that spoke to him had addressed him as Lord and God. And his bitterness, of course, was targeted towards Christians in the church who obviously had a hard time coming before Domitian and calling him Lord or God. So obviously Domitian got very angry at the church and Christians and, and really kind of targeted them in this persecution. So John was again, you know, caught and, and, and persecuted. He was attempted to be um, uh, killed off by being placed in a pot of boiling oil. Now, um, Tertullian, the historian, said that John went through this ordeal and yet miraculously that pot of boiling oil had no effect on him. Most don't know that he didn't boil because John was a friar. So just so you know, a little bit of tidbit of information and history there for you. But So Domitian then had John exiled to the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. It's this rocky island about 10 miles long, 6 miles wide. And it was here that, that Rome had kind of put up this penal camp where prisoners labored there in the mines, kind of like Alcatraz. Think of that. Here's, here's Patmos in a similar frame. And so 
It's here on the island of Patmos where John received this revelation and, and penned this book of Revelation around 95 AD. And again, this is a book that's meant to bring encouragement. We've got the who, the when, here's the why of it. Because he's looking to encourage Christians living during this time where they're undergoing this persecution, their suffering, their spiritual warfare going on. And they needed to know that Jesus hadn't abandoned them. That in fact, Jesus is still at work, he's still in control, and Jesus is coming back again when he's going to right all the wrongs being done. So he's encouraging Christians, hold on guys, let me share this revelation with you. It's all about Jesus and all about what he's yet to do. So hold on by faith here. And this is why the book of Revelation is being written to detail these things that are coming. Now obviously, a bulk of this book is dealing with things that are going to take place in a time yet to come, all right? So there's things that are pertaining to future events. That's, that's eschatology. Eschatology comes from the two words eschatos, meaning last things, and then logos, meaning to study. So it's a study of last things or end times things. That's what eschatology is, and that's much of this book here of Revelation. So because we're dealing with the study of last things, there's been a lot of things within Revelation that's cause people to interpret these things in a very different way in a in a way that kind of has brought a lot of you know confusion or dispute even among christians now there's typically throughout the ages four ways that people have looked at or interpreted the book of revelation first of all there's the preterist view all right that means or it's from the latin word preter meaning past in other words this approach states that everything in the book of Revelation took place in the first century. In other words, it's already all been fulfilled. So the preterist, if you look to the book of Revelation, goes, hey, this has nothing to do with today or tomorrow or the future. It's already been done. It's fulfilled. It's wrapped up. It's, it's, it's taken care of. This book then is really more so only about kind of the comfort and encouragement for the saints facing persecution. Preterists claim that all the events in Revelation have already happened, yet John states seven times that he's writing prophecy. Prophecy. Things that are, are going to unfold here. So there's the preterist view, one that we don't, I don't hold to. Uh, there's the historical view. This view interprets these chapters as a history of the church from Jesus Christ's first advent to his second advent. In other words, the fulfillment of Revelation is going on continuously in the history of the church from John's day all the way to our present day here today. It's being played out as we speak, right? But again, we're dealing with things which are going to take place after the church. So it's more than just a historical view. There's also then the spiritual or the allegorical view. This approach sees all the symbols and the, and the pictures of Revelation as non-literal, right? They, they basically say that these aren't actual events, but they're rather stories and pictures describing just this struggle between good and evil. Listen, the golden rule of Bible interpretation is to take the Bible literally unless the text itself suggests another interpretation. Somebody once said, when the clear sense of Scripture makes good sense, then seek no other sense. And that's how we take the book of Revelation. Understand that John is viewing things taking place in Whatever year it's going to be, 2025, 2030, he's sitting in the first century, right? And he's trying to describe things that he's seeing. Helicopters, perhaps, flying through the sky. And he's like, 
How do you explain that? How do you describe that? So, of course, there's a, a picture that he's given because he doesn't know how best to describe that in his day. He's seeing future things. So it doesn't mean that they're allegorical in the sense that they're not real. He's seeing real things, but he's trying to describe them in the best way that he can in his day. So we don't subscribe to the spiritual or the allegorical view that just kind of takes this as a non-literal writing. Here's the other view. It's the futurist view. This, this group takes the events of Revelation literally and the symbols have a literal meaning and interpretation to them. Futurists see the book of Revelation as partly fulfilled, chapters 1 to 3, all right? And most of it as yet to be fulfilled, chapters 6 to 22, and that it will one day be certainly fulfilled. This is the view that I hold to, and I mean, if you want to have the correct view, you'll hold to that one too, but that's up to you to decide what you want to do with that. But this is the view that I I hold the, the futurist view. It's a very literal approach to the book of, of Revelation. So we're going to do our best to tackle all the apparent mysteries and symbols of Revelation over um, the next couple of weeks here. We're still doing uh, an overview, a 30,000 um, foot glimpse of the book of Revelation. So we're going to capture certain key events and things going on in themes, but there's going to be a lot of stuff that we're going to leave uncovered, okay? And if you want a more in-depth study, we did a study through the book of Revelation, uh, I think about five years ago, it was in 2015, I think, where we went through this and we took a long time going through it. So if you want to, if there's something in the book of Revelation that you're like, what is that talking about? Go ahead on onto our website, check out those messages from the book of Revelation that was done in about five years ago, and, and really get some info as to what is going on here in the book because it's going to be helpful for you. Hopefully it'll be encouraging to you. And it's just a wonderful, fascinating book that we get to go through. So we're going to look at it in a real, again, bird's eye view here and pick out a few interesting things. So again now, a real key to understanding and really interpreting Revelation is to be somewhat familiar with Old Testament idioms and symbols and Old Testament scripture, of the 404 verses in Revelation, there are some 800 Old Testament references in Revelation as a whole. Now, that's something I read somewhere, so I haven't gone through and counted them all. Uh, You may do so if you like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what I heard. 800 Old Testament references in the book of Revelation. It's, it's, uh, I believe it's the book in the New Testament that quotes the most from the Old Testament. But not only does Revelation look forward to future events, it also ties up all the, the unfinished business, you know, from the first 65 books. Genesis, right, is the book of beginnings. Revelation is the book then of consummation, of bringing it all together. They're rightly the bookends of Scripture. And knowing what lays between these books now is going to help give you a, a real good understanding of what's going on in Revelation. Revelation answers those deep questions like, why, me, why am I here? Where is this mixed up, out of control world heading? What do we see the world asking for? Well, a lot of people are looking for peace, you know, a greener earth as we deal with climate change or what people say about that, right? Revelation reveals that this is the makeup of the millennium where there's going to be no more wars. There will be peace when the Lord redeems his creation and it's perfect once again. You see, all these things are heading there in the book of Revelation, it's already planned out by Jesus to take care of these things that everybody's clamoring for today in the world. It's only going to be found in and through Jesus 
Christ. That's why this book is so wonderful. It gives us that revelation of who Jesus is and what he has in store for us. So, first thing we're going to look at, chapter 1. John's told to write, according to verse 19 again of chapter 1, write the things which you have seen. So look at this here. It says in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. So right off the bat, again, the, the book reveals that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this word revelation, I like it. It's the Greek word apocalypsis. Apocalypsis, which, of course, we get our English word apocalypse, right? Where we've kind of made that in our English language, this word that kind of depicts chaos and cataclysmic upheaval, right? Apocalypse. It's like, ah, everybody freaks out, right? But this word in the Greek means simply an unveiling, to reveal or uncover. It's like if an artist were to design a great statue that was going to be placed in front of City Hall. Now that statue, there's going to be a great unveiling party. So that statue sits there with a sheet over it so nobody can see it until the big day. And as soon as that sheet comes off, what do you have? You have apocalypsis, the unveiling, the revealing of what the statue is like. That's what the book of Revelation does. It brings down the the cover so that we can see a more fuller look at Jesus Christ and all that he has planned for us. The purpose here is to reveal, not conceal, to clear up and not confuse. So understand that as we go through the book of Revelation here. And notice what we read there in verse one. I like that. Because it says, write the things which must take place shortly or which must shortly take place which must shortly take place this is not just an urgent necessity but an absolute certainty god has put all things in order and is carrying all things out according to his plan and his timetable now you might be asking like what do you mean by shortly here right i mean god gave him to show certain things which must shortly take place you're thinking that was two thousand years ago I mean, people for decades now have been clamoring for this idea that the Lord's coming soon. If John's saying shortly, what is the deal exactly? Because it doesn't certainly seem like it's been short. What does he mean by that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because that Greek word for shortly is the Greek word tacos, which doesn't speak of Mexican cuisine, but of speed, right? And quickness, the way that I actually eat my tacos. That's the idea, right? With speed. This is the idea of surely. It's where we get our English word, tachometer. Tachometer, which measures the revolution of your engine. The higher the tachometer goes, typically the faster you're going to go, right? So it's not that John was saying that these events were ready to happen back in 95 AD, that they were going to come in just a short time. But what he's saying is that when they begin to happen, understand that those revolutions are going to pick up and it's going to begin to happen with increasingly speed so that when they begin to unravel, it's going to be quick. It's going to flow very fast. The RPMs, we're about 1,000 in John's day. They've accelerated to about 4,000 in our day. And we're about to redline soon, I believe, to which everything is going to unravel with swiftness. Verse 4, 
John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So John addresses various churches in Asia, modern day Turkey, right? As we begin the study through this book, it's important that we familiarize ourselves with an important number in the Bible and one that plays an important role in the book of Revelation. It's the number seven. It's a number that in biblical numerology represents completeness. In all, the number seven is mentioned some 54 times in the book of Revelation. We're going to see a lot of examples of that as we go through. Here's a few of them. We're going to see seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowl judgments, seven lampstands, seven spirits, seven stars, seven promises to those that overcome in chapters two to three, seven lamps, seven horns. You get the idea, right? It, the list goes on. But those are just a few of the many that are, are going to be seen in the book of Revelation. So seven is very important here. Seven, that number of completion. God created the heavens and the earth in six days and he rested on the seventh day because it was finished complete, right? It's appropriate that sevens are prominent in the book of Revelation because it, it, it is the book that gives us the completion of God's plan for the whole human race. For all of his creation. Everything that began in Genesis is is consummated in Revelation. Speaking of sevens, some scholars point out that we're getting close to the end of that 6,000 years of recorded human history. By their calculations, it would have been about 4,004 BC on the calendar when Adam was created. Add to that 2,000 or so years from the birth of Jesus to now and you're at 6,000 years. In other words... We're, we're moving into that 7,000th year. Perhaps we're getting very close to that millennial reign of Christ, which is that age of just that rest and completion where everything is redeemed again. Very interesting when you see that in human history, the timeline that we're on moving into that 7,000th year of human history. That's exciting to think about. I think we're already in it, perhaps, you know, and we're getting ready to go, okay, Lord, Seems like any time now would be a good time for you to come back and to begin to see these things playing itself out as Revelation reveals to us here. Pretty exciting things to think about. Look at verse 9 here, chapter 1. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So here's John now. On the island of Patmos, as he says, writing this, receiving this revelation. Now, he gives a kind of peculiar phrase here for us. He lumps together the tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? I think John is stating that we must enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation. That's what the word of God says elsewhere, right? And we need the grace and patience of Jesus to simply continue on. Now keep in mind, this is not about going through the tribulation to come. That seven-year period is reserved exclusively for God to deal with Israel according to Daniel chapter 9. We'll get to that in a little bit here. This is rather speaking of just the trials and tribulations that you're going to encounter just from and through the world. Where again, the world is looking to kind of persecute the church and believers as they hated Jesus, they're going to hate you. So this is not the, the tribulation to come. This is the tribulation that's a natural outcome of just being strangers and pilgrims in this world. And so 
John is there on the island of, of Patmos. And notice this. He's there. Not because of any wrong he's done. He's lived a simple and faithful life. And yet he's going through these things. Now, he wasn't being punished because of the Lord. He did everything he was called to do. But it was simply his testimony of Jesus that landed him on Patmos. But I like how this verse reads. It says, I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God. You notice what he says there in verse 9? I was on the island of Patmos for the word of God. In other words, I believe John is recognizing, and I was sent here so that I could receive a special revelation from the Lord. He's not seeing this as some punishment. He's seeing it as an opportunity where he can see the Lord more clearly. I think that's so encouraging and helpful for us because despite whatever situation you may find yourself in today, no matter how desolate and dreary, look to see what God wants to do. Because that place where you think, man, I'm being hung out to dry, might be the place of the greatest revelation you'll receive from the Lord. Look to the Lord. Be expectant of what He wants to do, even in those midst of dry, desolate times. Because it's oftentimes in those times that the Lord will come and reveal Himself to you in in wonderful, special ways. John received that here. Look at verse 10. Let's read a few verses here. Verse 10 of chapter 1. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So, here's John. And he sees this great revelation now of Jesus, right? Now, John had the privilege of walking with Jesus during Jesus' ministry on earth, right? Those three years, John was able to be with him in, in an intimate, special way that most did not have the opportunity to experience. But John now sees Jesus in a fresh way. He had a glimpse of this at the Mount of Transfiguration, but now he's seeing it in a more fuller way. Because remember, Jesus now during his ministry on earth kind of conducted his life in a gentle, meek, and mild way, right? That was the description he gives of himself there in Matthew. John now doesn't see Jesus just as this, you know, mild, meek, gentleman. He sees him as judge, right? He hears Jesus speak with a loud voice as of a trumpet, And Jesus declares himself to be God. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What he has begun, he's saying, I am going to finish now as judge. And as John turns around to see, he sees his Savior, but now he sees his resurrected, glorified, victorious Savior, the conquering King before him. He sees Jesus with eyes like a flame of fire. Fire usually was that picture of judgment. 
See, when we stand before Jesus, he's going to look at our lives and all that we've done is going to be judged by this fire. His eyes will look into our hearts and, it, and it's going to just simply, I think, burn away all that stuff that had no relevance to Jesus. That, that didn't have any, any bearing for eternity. But again, I don't think this is just a look of judgment where we fear. I think this also has that look of just comfort. It's like, you know, sitting around a campfire. You're just warm. You're comforted oftentimes. I think that's, for those that are believers in Jesus, is what this is going to be also like here for us. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. Again, brass speaks of judgment in God's word. In Genesis 3.15, God said that the devil would bruise his heel. That happened on the cross, right? But in so doing, Jesus took the judgment of God for our sin. And, and, and it's been refined as though in a furnace now. He's coming back again now with feet solid as brass that will bring judgment to all those who have rejected him. I notice John's response here in verse 17. He says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. See, John has walked with Jesus in the past. But now, notice John's response. He couldn't even stand before Jesus now. He just falls down as though he's dead. Why? Because he's seeing Jesus in a whole new light. He's seeing Jesus in his complete majesty. Just like Isaiah, right? In Isaiah 6, 5, when he says, when he got a, a glimpse of the throne, Isaiah says, woe is me for I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was just like rocked. And John now, who's familiar with Jesus, yet now he sees Jesus, conquering king, in all of his majesty. And John, who walked with Jesus, can't even stand now before Jesus. He's just dropping as a dead man in just awe, I believe, in reverence before him. But look at that love and the grace of our Savior. Jesus doesn't say, ah, man, John, what do you, you know, you're just such a, a, a dummy man, have you? messed up so much in your life. He doesn't reveal any kind of sin. He just picks him up with grace. He says, don't worry. Fear not. I've got it all covered because Jesus says what? I, I am the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. I, I'm alive. I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. Jesus brings John just his great comfort and assurance. That is, as John falls before Jesus, I think, and just overcome by his own unworthiness, Jesus reminds him that, that in, in Christ, John is covered. He's cleansed. The work is finished. It's done. And Jesus extends just that love and grace to him. I pray this book brings us into a more clear view of who Jesus is. And just like John experienced, may we grow in just awe and wonder of Jesus as we begin to just go through this here and see just this awesome revelation of Jesus. So chapter one details what John has seen. He's seen the resurrected, glorified Jesus. Chapter one details this vision of Jesus that John has. 
glorified, resurrected, conquering king, coming back as judge. But then in chapters two and three, John is told, write the things which are. John's very familiar with the churches around him. He's been pastoring. He's been teaching these people. So now we get a view of these churches here. Now there's a lot to learn from these churches because they speak to us both personally and universally revealing the stages. I think of church history from its inception right up to the present day. As we look at these churches, we see that these churches can represent these different eras of church history, starting with Ephesus. Look at that early apostolic church age. Smyrna is that persecuted church that went through from you know, 100 to 341 AD. Pergamos is that pagan church that began to go into those dark ages, you know, 314 to 590 AD. Thyatira, that Roman church. Sardis. From 1517 to 1800 AD, the, the, the Reformation Church. Philadelphia, um, 1800 present. I've got some other dates I'm going to bring up. I think Philadelphia, I, I was going to correct this slide here. Sorry, I didn't do that. I think Philadelphia is more so about 1730 to the present age, which is the revived church. And then Laodicea, 1900 to about the present is kind of that relaxed church. All right, we're going to look at these a little bit more here. But here's... Um, Kind of a view, again, modern day Turkey, uh, these churches of, of Asia here, and you'll see. And this is kind of a familiar route now. The order that we go in was a familiar route. If you were kind of having a circulatory letter that would be passed on, it would go in that order from Ephesus to Smyrna and on. And so you see this flow that John carries as he leads these churches here or addresses these churches as Jesus addresses these churches, I should say. And so we see that order that's taking place. Now, as we look at these seven churches, we need to realize that there's a, a threefold interpretation and application of these churches. There's a, a literal view here. As John was being instructed what to write to these churches, the message was geared for the individual church that was being addressed. Right? What was addressed in, in, is what that church was going through at that particular time. So there's a very literal message to that church at John's time being addressed to them it was what they were going through all right then there's the historical approach that deals with uh, again it pertains to all the church history from the start of the church at pentecost to the end of the church at the rapture so the study of these seven churches gives us an understanding of each age of the church throughout its history i think that's very cool and we'll see this as we saw uh, a few slides ago, just again, those different eras of church history and how those churches really pertain to what was going on during that time in history. And then there's the personal view uh, of these churches here. Within the message to these churches, I think it's really a, a personal application we can draw for ourselves. There's something to be learned from each of these churches, which is why each message ends with those words, he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen, if you're sitting here tonight or listening online at home and you've got an ear, guess what? There's a word for you from these churches that is personal to you. There's something we can learn and glean from and grow through as we listen to these messages to these churches here. So it's not just personal to them, literal for what they're going through in that day or has a historical reference, but it's personal for us as well. Now, we're also going to see a, a similar pattern unfold looking at these churches here in how they're addressed because each of them has these different uh, flow be addressed to it. There's the 
church being addressed. Each one is addressed to a specific church and to the angel of that church. Now notice this. When it's addressed to the angel of that church, that word angel is the Greek word angelos, and it can be interpreted as messenger or the pastor of that church. It's the same Greek word angelos used to speak of John the Baptist in Mark 1 verse 2, which addresses him as the messenger. And so this could be very much dealing with the leader of the church and the congregants there. So it's addressed to the church, and then we see that there's um, a note about Jesus there. Jesus is described in his glorified state in each of the messages. In other words, how Jesus was described in chapter 1, there will be a portion of that used in the address to the churches. Jesus will refer to him through one of those descriptions that was given in chapter 1. And it will be something that will be very um, pertinent to what that church is dealing with here. It will connect to the word that's being given to them. And then there's the commendation. Jesus acknowledges that he knows their works and he kind of brings that word of encouragement to them. Then there's the condemnation. It's also a word of complaint given that reveals where these churches were missing it. And then there's counsel. Jesus lays out very clearly what they're to do to get themselves back on track. And then there's the challenge or the reward. There's a promise of reward to those who follow through this word given and to those who overcome. Every church ends with a word to those that overcome and a promise and reward given to them. So here's what we see. I don't know if you'll be able to see this. It might be kind of small. I can print this out for anybody that's uh, looking to have that and see it and uh, keep it just to kind of see because we have all these churches addressed here. Uh, The church at Ephesus, for example, as you kind of look at that, you see that Jesus now, look at verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So there's Jesus addressing. Who's addressing the church? It's Jesus. He takes a description right out of chapter 1. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and then you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. There's the, the commendation given to them, right? He's encouraged that they, they've tested all these false prophets. They've, they've stood for the truth. They've been patient in these things. But then verse 4, nevertheless, here's the condemnation. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So we see the condemnation is that, what happened? They left their first love. Notice that. It was something that they chose they left they walked away in other words and and this is amazing because this is the the first century church this is the early church and yet what happened they just kind of got into routine they just got into kind of just going through the practice without there being a real work of love behind it they they left their first love and the early church is doing that how much more do we need to guard ourselves because we can get very complacent very comfortable we can just get kind of in cruise control. And when we get into that mode, we stop operating in love for Jesus and recognizing love he has for us and, and being stirred up because of that love and serving out of that love. This church 
left that first love. So what's the counsel? The counsel there in verse 5, remember from where you've fallen, repent and do your first works. So repent, remember, repent, and repeat is what's being given to them, right? That's the counsel being given. Remember, repent, and, and repeat or return to those things that you once did. So often we need to get back to basics in our own lives and go, Jesus, I don't want to, I don't want to get kind of in a rut or in routine with you. I want to continue to be pressing in with you. And just as it was when I first came to recognize the salvation and forgiveness of sin that you had for me, where I was just so excited. I want to continue on there. I want to return to that place, Jesus. Stir my heart to just be, again, that place of just excitement and joy for what you've done for me. Let me not grow cold. Let me not become complacent. That's the word to the church at Ephesus. And then the challenge or the reward was, again, to those that overcome, I would give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. There's going to be eternal life and eternal rewards. The right to eat from the tree of life. So all through these churches, they're being addressed with all these different things. You know, Jesus reveals himself. He gives a word of, of commendation, except to the church at Laodicea. No commendation for them. It was kind of all bad. Gives that word of condemnation, the things that they're missing, except for the church of Smyrna and Philadelphia. There's no word of common, uh, condemnation to them. But then he gives counsel and a challenge to them. Laodicea here, again, kind of pictures that um, last day's church, right? And what was the problem with Laodicea? Well, let's read there. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right? These things says the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Notice that. These were people that were becoming very self-reliant. Again, very comfortable in what they had to offer. They were just lukewarm, as Jesus says. They weren't really on fire for the Lord. They, weren't, they were just sort of having this, this me-centered gospel, in a sense. Oh, we're good. We got it all together. Oh, they might go to church. They might worship. But it's very self-serving at times. And this church of Laodicea had become that way. It wasn't serving the Lord. It wasn't for the Lord. They needed to recognize that they needed the Lord. That they were wretched. That they were empty without Him. There was nothing they could find in and through themselves to make them better. It was only in Jesus. Only He could provide salvation and life for them. It wasn't found in anything else. So Jesus says there in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Familiar verse. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne 
as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's amazing that this church that had no word of commendation for, only condemnation, Jesus invites them in to a sweeter, deeper fellowship with them. He's knocking, he's ready. Open up and he's going to come in. And to those that respond, he gives the greatest of rewards to sit on the throne as he also overcame and sat down with his father on his throne. It's amazing that to this church that's seen the worst off, he gives the greatest of rewards. I mean, that's just great grace and love right there by Jesus, isn't it? Well, listen, how are we doing here? How's everybody doing? You doing okay? All right, we're going to just cover a little bit more here. Um, we're not, obviously, we're not going through all of Revelation, so don't freak out here. Um, but chapter 4 moves us into that third section of the outline. All right, chapter 1, write the things which you've seen. Chapters 2 and 3, write, write the things which are. So we've seen Jesus. The things which are are the church. But now he's told, write the things which will take place after this. Moving into chapter 4, we don't hear about the churches again until the end of the book. Why is that? Because we move in a time that is not for the church. It's the last week of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. A seven-year period that's reserved for Israel. It's a time known as the tribulation, a time where the judgment of God is being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world and a time where God is opening the eyes of his people, Israel. So before the tribulation comes, another significant event is going to unfold. One in which I believe Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 so clearly depicts and reveals for us. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, or sorry, after these things, I, John, looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. That term, after these things, is the Greek word metatauta. It's repeated twice in this one verse. In other words, don't miss it. Understand what it's revealing to us. So what is these things that we're moving past to focus on these other things? It's what we just saw in chapters 2 and 3, the church. And now... The church is gone, removed. That call for John to come up here, I think pictures of the rapture, where Jesus one day is going to call out, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, with the shout of a trumpet, what is John here? He hears the voice I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me to come up here, I believe. This is picturing the rapture of the church, where one day Jesus is going to come and just call us up. Come up here. Come up here where we're going to be taken to heaven. Now, some say that the rapture is just a more modern teaching. That it's not something that was, you know, biblical in a sense. It's something that's been brought on in more recent times. It's just escapism for the Christian. The view or the teaching of the rapture became more widely known in the early 1800s under John Darby. Yes, it did. But it had its advocates long before Darby. Looking at some of the teachings of early church leaders, we see that they too taught this doctrine of the rapture. Irenaeus in 180 AD in that circus said this, 
And therefore, when in the end the church shall be suddenly caught up from this, it is said there shall be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning, neither shall be. For this is the last contest of the righteous in which when they overcome, they are crowned with incorruption. Grant Jeffrey has found an ancient citation from a sermon ascribed to Ephraim of Nisibis. In, he lived in 303 or 306 to 373 AD. So again, long before Darby, right? And he clearly teaches that believers will be raptured and taken to heaven before the tribulation. This translation of the sermon indicates the following segment. He said, For all the saints and elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord, lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. This text was originally a sermon called On the Last Times, the Antichrist and the End of the World. So we see that there are early church leaders and fathers that clearly spoke of the rapture. Listen, we all believe in the imminent return of Jesus. And that can only be seen and done to the rapture. Because we believe Jesus is coming again, no doubt setting his foot down the road, but that's going to come after the events of Revelation unfold, the, the book of Revelation, the, the tribulation period. So we're going to begin to see, oh, these things are lining up now. Guess the Lord's coming soon. That's not an imminent return. It can happen at any time. We know that Jesus won't come physically to this earth until those things begin to unfold. But the rapture can happen at any time. Any time. Like now. I was hoping maybe they could have done something there. But that's the idea. It's the imminent return. It could happen at any time. And you can only have the expectation of an imminent return of Jesus through the rapture when he's going to gather his bride, the church, to meet him in the air. So where do we go at the rapture? We go to heaven. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. John says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. John is taken to heaven. And notice where his attention is drawn to. It's not to the pearly gates or who's manning the gates. Is it Peter? Is it who's it going to be? He's not focused on past family members or loved ones that have gone on before him. Not looking for that pet dog that he's hoping maybe dogs are in heaven. His attention is on the throne and the one who's occupying the throne. He sees God there. See, as much as I believe heaven is going to be a great reuniting of all believers where we're going to see our loved ones. No doubt I believe that. But that's not what is going to be the focus of heaven. The focus of heaven is going to be seeing God, being with God, being able to worship God, seeing Jesus Christ there in all of his majesty and glory. That's what I believe we're going to be so caught up in in heaven. Man, I've heard people over time think of heaven as being boring or, you know, what are we going to do for all of eternity? Oh my goodness. Or they just get so caught up in heaven being all about, you know, seeing loved ones or their, you know, pets that passed on, things like that. I think, man, we're just missing it. I'm so excited to be in heaven simply 
to be with my Savior and to see God there. This is who John sees, and the focus goes directly there. And the scene in heaven is out of worship. Think, think about how wonderful it's going to be to worship God and to do so while being before him. I mean, worship as we gather together here is sweet. I mean, I love to come and gather and worship. But imagine what it's going to be like when we get to gather around the throne and worship God, who's going to be there in the midst of our worship. That is going to be exciting. It's going to be glorious. And here we see this scene of worship taking place. And we see there in chapter 4, the four living creatures, these special angelic beings, cherubim as they're referred to in Ezekiel chapter uh, 1 and chapter 10. They're there worshiping. And then we see the 24 elders. Now there's been a lot of debate over who are these 24 elders? Could it be this group of people or that group of people? I believe it's speaking of believers. Could be Old and New Testament believers. It could be simply New Testament believers. It's interesting that the priesthood had 24 divisions. And we as a church now, according to 1 Peter 2, are called a royal priesthood. So it could be that it's 24 elders are, are just depicting the church. And they're there worshiping. And notice what they're doing. They're tossing their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. Right there in chapter 4, verse 11. The song going out of the saints here. And again, all glory and praise. There are going to be rewards in heaven, no doubt. But I don't believe we're going to be walking around heaven comparing our crowns or our jewels. You know? Going, oh, you've only got a couple jewels, right? Did you see mine up here? Did you see all those, you know? We're going to be throwing our crowns before the throne, saying, listen, we don't even deserve this. We're not worthy. Oh, we thank you for rewarding us, but man, I just want to give this back to you because you're the one that receives all glory and praise. You're the one that's worthy, oh Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. Then John, in verse, or sorry, chapter 5, was captivated now by what was in the hand of God. He sees the scroll, chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So again, this is where, you know, people begin to look at some of these things and go, man, what is going on here? What's happening? What is this all about? Ah, too confusing. I'm just going to leave it alone. What was this scroll? Well, some see the scroll as being the Old Testament, maybe the Law of Moses. Some think it's the Book of Revelation or or more specifically, the chapters that are still to come. It's kind of, a again, revealing what's to come here, basically. But I feel that a likely and right view is that it's the title deed to the earth. Now, that might sound kind of weird to some of you. Some of you may be listening at home right now or thinking, title deed to the earth, how do you get that out of this scroll? Well, this idea has some real value to it because we know that following the tribulation, Jesus is going to reign again on this earth. Now in Israel, land couldn't be sold to other people. It could never be sold permanently among each other. It was God's land and would remain in his possession. But he did entrust it to the various tribes and families of Israel. If someone had lost a piece of land by debt, then he had the opportunity to buy it back when he was able. And he would have to show that he had the authority to take the scroll, to break its seals, and meet the requirements to buy it back. Listen to what Chuck Smith said. He said this, Under Jewish law, if you yourself couldn't redeem your property, a relative or near of kin could step in and redeem it. 
This way, the property remained in the family. If your relative did redeem it, he would be known as the Goel, or in Hebrew, kinsman redeemer. If you could redeem it, you would call for the elders of the city to meet with you before the city gates. You would bring out the scroll that had all the requirements upon it, and you would break the seals. You'd open the scroll and show your ability to pay the price, proving that you had the right to redeem that land. So this scroll, I believe, is the title deed of the earth. The seals on it are the requirements to meet the demands of that, to be able to rightfully pay back. Many Bible scholars have taken this view that the scroll is that deed to planet earth. God created it, Jesus redeemed it, and it's rightfully his. But you might ask, isn't the Lord in control of it right now? And, and hasn't he always been? Isn't it his already? Well, the answer is yes, but see, the Lord's allowed some things to take place. See, the title deed of the earth was essentially given to Adam. Adam was to have dominion over all things on the earth. Genesis 1 verse 28 tells us that. But what happened? Adam forfeited that right to Satan. When the devil intentionally scammed him and Adam sinned, That caused a downward spiral of God's perfect creation. Sin brought decay into the world. Paul called Satan the God of this world. Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. Now, of course, God's still on the throne, always has been, but Satan has been given opportunity to run his course. And it all stems from man's disobedience. So Satan is acting as kind of the the prince of this era, the ruler of this world right now. Remember when Jesus was being tempted by Satan. Satan brought him up to a high place and said, listen, all the kings of the world I will give to you if you'll bow down and worship me. Jesus didn't dispute that. Jesus didn't say, wait a second, this is all mine. No, Satan had the authority over that at that time. And you see, look at what's going on now as Satan has taken authority over this world. A lot of people like to say, Look at what's going on in the world. How, how could you have a God? If all, I, I can't believe that there's a God because of all the evil in the world. Understand this. Satan is the one that's ruling this world right now. That's, that's having his way. That's brought corruption into God's perfect creation. Satan's to blame, not God. People have it wrong. But there's coming a day, and Revelation is revealing to us, there's coming a day when Jesus is going to come again and take his rightful ownership over this world, and then we'll see it redeemed to the way it was meant to be all along. This is what Revelation is revealing for us here. So John weeps when he sees this scroll, and he says that there was no one worthy to take it. Nobody. What's happening? He's panicking. What's what's going to happen now? To this world, but then notice here, verse 5, chapter 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This is Jesus here coming forth and taking the scroll. And notice John sees him 
as a lamb as though it had been slain there in verse 6. Many say that the only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars that Jesus bears. Perhaps a reminder throughout eternity of what he has done for us to be there with him. So, notice here Jesus too, he's standing. He stands in the midst of the throne there. We read elsewhere Jesus sitting in heaven. That showed that that work of salvation was complete. He's resting in that finished work of salvation. He's sitting, interceding for us, but now he's standing. This, I believe, reveals his time to step in and intervene now into world affairs. In chapter 6, then we see the beginning of the tribulation. How are we doing here? 8.19, okay. Um, Let's do this, guys, quickly. Let's touch on chapter 6 and 7, and then we'll pick it up in chapter 8 next time. All right? And this... We're going to cruise through here. We'll give an overview of this real quickly here. The tribulation is going to be a most destructive and chaotic time ever seen in history. You wonder why Jesus hasn't come yet. And the short answer is that God is desiring that none would have to go through that. You see, the reason we're not moving into this time period right now, I believe, is because God is wishing that none would perish. Second Peter 3 tells us that. He's desiring none to have to go through that. He desires that all would come to the knowledge of salvation. So there's that patience and long-suffering of God here in that. But eventually time is going to run out and the tribulation will begin with the opening of these first four seals that are on that title deed of the earth where again it's going to be this judgment coming forth. The first seal, the Antichrist. Verse 2 of chapter 6. And I looked and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a, had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. The, four, the first horseman, right, is riding a white horse. He has a bow and a crown. Now many have seen that as being Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus comes riding on a white horse, right? He's got a bow, a crown, it's got to be what it is. Jesus is seen in chapter 19 coming in riding on a, on a white horse and with a crown. But the crown is different. Here in chapter 6, the crown is Stephanos. It was a crown of triumph given to deserving people as a display of public honor. Athletes received that crown when competing in the games. Jesus comes, however, wearing a diadem crown. It was a crown worn by a sovereign reigning king. It's a different crown. And it's a different person that we see here. Secondly, Jesus is going to come back with the armies of heaven at his side. Also on white horses. The rider in chapter 6 is accompanied by some not so good company here, as we'll see. The rider here, speaking of the Antichrist, coming in appearance of Jesus, coming with this look of, I'm going to be the one that's going to save you and help you. I'm the one that you need to look to and receive as one that's going to help you here. He's the Antichrist. And then the second seal is that of war, the red horse. And we're going to see that the Antichrist is quickly going to turn things around. He's offering peace and everything, but it's going to lead to just nothing but chaos, division, and fighting. The third seal is out of famine. Interesting to see the timeline that we're in right now as we've been dealing with COVID, the virus and all, and, um, and how they're going to talk about, you know, the potential, not just the potential, but, you know, the... Um, 
the reality of food shortages coming. And yet that's something that Revelation has said this is going to be a mark of those end times. Famine. And then the fourth seal is death, the pale horse. And it says in chapter 6, verse 8, that a fourth of the earth's population is going to be devoured. A fourth of the population. And we can't even begin to imagine what that's going to be like. Think about that. I mean, at the rapture, there's going to be millions of people that are going to be missing from the earth. And at the onset of the tribulation, there's going to be a fourth taken. I mean, the decimation. How do you deal with that? I can't imagine. I mean, the tribulation is going to be an intense time. And then the fifth seal is tribulation saints. Look at verse 10. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them. And it said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So these are martyrs here during the tribulation. They were killed because of their faith in the Lord. And notice they're not asking if God will avenge their death, but rather when. See, these saints know that God will do the work of judging and repaying, but they're just not sure of God's schedule. It's basically a similar prayer to, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Lord, let your work prevail here. And so they're asking, Lord, when? And the Lord says, just a little while longer, because there's more that are going to come. There's more that are going to be added to your number. The sixth seal, cosmic upheaval. There's going to be earthquakes. The end of chapter 6 depicts this, earthquakes. Sun becomes black, the moon becomes blood red, stars fall, the sky recedes, which causes mountains and islands to be moved. I mean, it is going to get pretty crazy here on this earth during the tribulation. And it's going to cause great fear. And for the people to realize that God is the one truly in control and wielding all power. And notice it doesn't cause them to repent, but it just simply causes them to recognize that he's in control and exercising his judgment. What do they say? They say in verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. But nobody repents. They're not turning to the Lord. They're not saying, Lord, boy, we we judged you wrong. We understand now that you are the God, sovereign of all. You're in control. No, they're they're not running to the Lord. They're running away from the Lord. They're hiding themselves, trying to protect themselves, knowing that the day of his wrath has come. Listen, this is why I believe, again, that the church is not going to be in the tribulation. Many like to kind of put the rapture of the church somewhere mid-tribulation or pre-wrath. But I believe the tribulation is simply the wrath of God. And, and 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says that He's not appointed us in a wrath, but to obtain salvation. This is a period of time, seven years, that's reserved for Israel and not for the church. And I believe He's going to take us out of here so that we don't have to go through these things. He would not judge the righteous with the wicked, he tells us. And there's going to be a lot of upheaval and chaos going on that he's going to have his church out of the way for that. Chapter 7 now, what's interesting is we see these different um, judgments coming. There's the seal judgments, there's the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments, three of them. And between each of them, there's going to be like a, a, a parenthesis, a little bit of a, a break between them to kind of give some more detail as to what's going on during that time period. 
some of the events that are unfolding in the tribulation. Chapter 7 is one of those parenthetical pauses, a break in the seals to fill in some added information. And here's what we see. In this chapter, um, chapter 7, we see that God is going to have 144,000 Jews that are going to be sealed, marked, set apart to be his servants during the tribulation, to be witnesses of God. I think this is such a wonderful chapter coming out of chapter 6 because you'd think there's no hope. God's angry. God's just wiping people, just obliterating people. But yet we come to chapter 7, we see God has a remnant. And he's got a remnant preserved so that they can go and share the gospel with the people. In other words, all through this time of judgment, God is still allowing the gospel to go out and still throwing out opportunity for people to receive him as their savior. That boggles my mind. That is the wonderful grace and love of God that in the midst of judgment and and this, you know, being deserved for rejecting Jesus, he's still extending grace and opportunity for people to receive him. And he marks 144,000 Jews to say, guys, get busy and go and share the gospel. I mean, that is, isn't that so incredible to think of the love and the grace and the mercy of God? And then we see there in verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom. Thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Let me just stop right there. 144,000 sealed Jews. Right? And, and so it's, it's 12,000 from every tribe. And then we see a multitude. John says a multitude from every nation. In other words, these are Gentile people that are getting saved during the tribulation. And they've been martyred and, and they're there now before the throne. John, they're, they're separate from the church because John doesn't recognize them. Who are these? He's like, I don't know. You tell me. What are you asking me for? You tell me. They're a different group. These are the tribulation saints. But get the picture here that through the tribulation, I believe there's going to be such an incredible revival. Many people say that this is going to be the greatest revival in all of human history. It's going to take place during the tribulation. That's incredible. That's pretty exciting. Now, listen. You know, anybody that might be listening online, I don't need to tell you guys this, but there might be people listening online thinking, oh, there'll be time down the road for me to make that decision to follow Christ, to accept Him as my Lord and Savior. Oh, there'll be time. Listen, first of all, you never know when your time will be up. And it's not going to be easy during this time in the tribulation. Oh, we read of people getting saved, but it's not going to be an easy thing during that time. 
Because for many people, and we'll see as we go through, there will be many people that just continue to harden their heart to the point where they will not turn. They will want nothing to do with God. And don't put it off. Don't wait. You need Jesus today. He died to spare you of these things. He died to bring you life, and not just life now, but life eternal with Him in heaven. We can't earn our way there. We can't be good enough, do enough good things. We can't make it on our own. We need Jesus and His righteousness, the righteousness that was provided for us by Him dying on a cross and forgiving us of our sin. Oh, my friends, you need Jesus. Would you look to Jesus? Would you call out to Jesus today and receive Him as your Savior and know and experience the life that He has for you, newness of life and life evermore? He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was alive, was dead, but is alive forevermore, he tells us here in Revelation. Oh, would you experience that life in him? And, and we'll continue this on here in chapter 8 in a couple weeks here. And uh, we'll continue on and we'll see if we get through the rest of it next time or divide up in a couple more weeks here. But lots to uncover, lots to go through. I hope this was helpful, encouraging to you. And just begins to make a little bit more sense of the book of Revelation. If you have any questions, please talk to me. If you have any questions listening online, send me an email. Brentsmith at CalvaryChapel.com and let me know. And be happy to go through this a little bit more with you. But let's pray and uh, then we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for tonight here where we can come and, and worship you. And just a foretaste of what is in store for us, Lord. As we will one day be around the throne worshiping you non-stop what a day that's going to be and so lord i pray you'll continue to prepare us lord for that day you'll continue to cause it to be filled with your spirit lord being strengthened and renewed and living with all patience in these days that we live lord knowing that you are coming soon book of revelation reveals that so clearly for us so may we just continue on in hope and in joy and walking as overcomers lord letting nothing hold us back just keeping our eyes on you and living as witnesses of you and for you now in these days we live. Lord, we look forward to this Sunday as we get to gather together. May that be a sweet time. May it be a time where the church is just edified and encouraged and blessed. May we come together in just sweet harmony centered around you, Jesus. And may it just be a wonderful time together. And so we ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.